This week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Chair and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck a month there. We are going to implement adding our episode notes as a PDF to those releases each week for the patrons to try to do something for you guys. So consider that or, you know, perhaps leave us a nice review on iTunes. But today, Taylor and I will be bringing you Simon Duffy, senior lecturer in the Department of Philosophy at Monash University, translator of Albert Lautmann's Mathematics, Ideas in the Physical Real, and the author of The Logic of Expression, Quality, Quantity, and Intensity in Spinoza, Hegel, and Deleuze, as well as Deleuze and the History of Mathematics in Defense of the New. And a very very machinic welcome to Simon Duffy. (laughs) Thank you very much. Absolutely. We're good to be here. I just want to say personally that I really enjoyed, I mean, I think Leibniz is very, you know, at least that section of the text or discussion, um, really fascinating in the in the field of sort of speculative ontologies, but I, I won't say too much more than that. Something we've been sort of instituting, Simon, is um, asking all of our guests to start out with, let's say, your philosophical origin story, maybe something mm-hmm. like an anecdote or, you know, something about perhaps your history and engagement with philosophy, something that kind of stands out, whether that be, again, some, you know, an experience, a thinker, a text that kind of gripped you and sort of gave you that sort of philosophical bug, if there's anything along those lines. Yeah, interesting. I mean, the anecdote that jumps to mind, I don't know if this is a good one or not, but um, I think at school, we were doing a play Actually, it was in French. In okay. my French course, we visited one of the theatres in, in Sydney where I grew up. And I mean, the, I don't remember. Actually, what was it? I mean, I think it was it was Beckett. So okay. It was okay. Waiting, waiting for Godot. Oh, wow. Um, and for some reason, so when's this? This is like in the, the early 80s. I had a neighbour who was sort of experimenting with punk kind of stuff. White pants, big baggy. Uh, jumpery sort of things, spiky hair. Yeah. And so I took it as my first sort of opportunity of sort of, uh, you know, a personal expression and got dressed up in this sort of outfit and went along and sort of shocked my French teacher, who I was actually very close to prior to this. <laughs> but during that performance, as kids were just sort of hanging around at interval, and I kind of found a copy of the gay science sitting on a shelf that obviously one of the, um, one of the ushers had been reading and kind of, you know, just sort of grabbed it and was sort of looking through it. And that that connection, sort of bit of Beckett, bit of bit of Nietzsche, and mm-hmm. of course with existentialism as a as a constant refrain, at least in, in my kind of growing up, was the sort of nexus of things that, you know, prompted further sort of investigation on my part anyway. So it took a little bit for that to kind of percolate, but eventually I kind of came around to sort of thinking through this sort of material. 
So I can't remember the, exactly how I came across Deleuze. I mean, yeah, in Australia, Paul Patton had just returned from France. And gotcha. Got a job at Sydney Uni. So I think I, I was actually like destined to be an English major, actually. I was mm-hmm. sort of doing a double major in English and a minor in philosophy and just got so annoyed at all of the anecdotal ways of engaging with Foucault and, and various sorts of theoretical things in, um, in literature. And Paul Patton arrived at Sydney Uni and was kind of like, okay, so here's an opportunity to actually read this stuff and make sense of it. And I still think that Patton's, some of his work on Foucault is some of the clearest and uh, most useful explication of, of some of the things going on and for, for Deleuze as well. So that was my first connection with with Deleuze, yeah. So Foucault was really my driver into philosophy and the connection with Foucault with Foucault and Deleuze then was through through Patton, I think, predominantly. And for some reason, I think there was a, there were some interesting Spinoza scholars at, uh, yeah. at Sydney as well. So Maura Gaines was there. And I think that Spinoza connection, I think, with her was um, doing a course with her on Spinoza. It's kind of like the first philosopher that actually really clicked for me. And so the Spinoza-Deleuze connection became sort of what I ended up exploring. So, I, I mean, I have a, I, I did a science degree or, you know, one of the science degrees mm-hmm. before I did my BA. So I have done a little bit of pure math and, you know, gotcha. lots of statistics and different things like that. So the math was not, you know, it wasn't foreign or anathema to me. So it sort mm-hmm. of became an interesting way of then trying to make sense of the Spinoza-Deleuze connection and thus, you know, my productivity over the last 20 years. So did Spinoza speak to you because of the geometrical method, so to speak, and the ethics, or was it just something about something else, maybe about... Uh you know, the cultivation of joy? Do you remember, uh, well, or was it just as clarity? The thing that I, that I nutted through and kind of worked out was, you know, there's that anecdote about the worm in the blood. I'm like not I sure I know this. this. Will, I had you... this ham-fisted way of trying to think through the worm in the blood. And I mean, I'd have to kind of think more about explicating <laughs> exactly how that anecdote works. That's fine. That's fine. But it, w- it was really just sort of, you know, having this weird sort of conversation with Moira Gaines kind of thinking, worm in the blood. I mean, what is it? There's, so you've got some perspective inside, but mm-hmm. where's the perspective from? And she kind of says, no, no, no. But the idea is that, you know, you've got to think actually about being the worm in the blood, not, mm. not as though there's some external perspective that brings us in. Right. And that then just sort of laid out what kind of... Uh, you know, what virtue might be in, in mm. sort of Spinoza in a, in a clearer kind of a way. So I sort of made sense of that text, you know, again, for me, by that sort of foray. So again, that's, that's a pretty superficial gloss of what went on. But those are the connections for me that sort of brought these various thinkers together and made them a, a topic of interest. Uh, I just want to say fellow English major and um, also mm-hmm. Foucault was very instrumental in my pursuit of philosophy as well. So just wanted to co-sign that. Go ahead, yeah, Taylor, yeah. sorry to Yeah, no, 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 you didn't interrupt <laughs> me. Uh, Cooper and I are, I also have an English major and a, and a philosophy degree as well. And, you know, so English was my way into philosophy. But, you know, in, with the way that literary studies is done, as you know, so much of it had become literary criticism. So you really do have to read, you know, Derrida, Foucault, all mm. of these, these other thinkers who are also very much knee deep in philosophy. And the reason why... I wasn't satisfied was it's like if I'm really going to take seriously this quote-unquote application of critical theory to literature I need to study philosophy 
otherwise you're you, as you said you, you stay on a kind of superficial level that that feels it's not necessarily imposter syndrome but it but it doesn't <laughs> it, it doesn't really get to the heart of the problems unless you you sort of can soak in some of that tradition yeah i i remember writing an essay about foucault and it the, the mm-hmm. essay it was this outrage so i think there was in circulation some bloke who got some massively high mark just a very simple explication of a couple of paragraphs of Foucault. And I, I, I read that after I had written this outrage sort of paper where I just demanded of the lecture to pay attention to some of the details of the things that he was throwing anecdotes about. Interesting. Okay. It just seemed that he wasn't picking up on what was kind of important about any of it. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, so, some of, the, some of the, that can give flavor, can give some interest, but at a certain point, you know, you can't live on on anecdotes alone. It can help yeah. get it, it can help get the the conversation started. But you're right. I'm, yeah. No, good. Exactly. I mean, you know. So I think I've I've steered too clear or tried to of the old anecdote kind of approach. But um, I think there is an anecdote approach that sort of really does just skate over the surface and has all sorts of inconsistencies as as a risk anyway. That's yeah. A, That's what I'm always um, concerned about. I think personally. <laughs> I'm always lamenting this to Taylor because I like to speculate wildly with some of this stuff. Well, speculation is different though, right? Okay. Yeah, it's just the dogmatic assertion of <laughs> contradictions. Who cares? Yeah, <laughs> These are yeah. just interesting things to say. <laughs> it's interesting to note that you you had the so you had the the science background. And I assume when you mean Patton came back from France that he would have, would he, would this have been 94 when he just finished translating Difference Repetition, or was this before that? Oh, this is before. So this okay. is this is closer to. So I think he he'd been back for a while, and I think he had different, you know, whatever single semester lectureships at various places. I mean, I know that now. I didn't really know what was going on before. And then when he got his first job at Sydney, I was kind of there as a fresh undergraduate, sort of gotcha. interested and receptive to the chagrin of the rest of the philosophy department. Do you need a second? Analytic leaning philosophy department. Yes. In those days, philosophy at Sydney was actually bifurcated. There was an analytic department and a, a general philosophy department. So it was a very, very interesting place to be. Yes. Um, but uh, I mean, that's, that's all since sort of wound up. It's a unified department now. It's interesting to think because in so many universities, you either have one or the other, and predominantly it is mostly analytic. Even today, we've said this before in previous episodes, but even today, Deleuze is being done more in sort of film studies or other departments rather than say philosophy even though as we see the history of philosophy is so important for the way in which he elaborates problems the way in which he reinterrogates the way in which he uh you know creates concepts and one of the things that you brought out to the fore and that i really appreciate is this notion that Deleuze is also drawing from the history of mathematics and sort of uh, making them encounter one another in a way that I think is perhaps maybe not unique to him, but is but he does it in a novel way. Was that something that that really captured your interest from your days doing the science degree? Was there something Deleuze was doing with with science and math and in bringing it in conversation with philosophy that that kind of grabbed you? Yeah, yeah. Look, it did. I mean, I think. Um these connections with mathematics are kind of important across you know the history of philosophy broadly mm-hmm. but, but also the history of of analytic philosophy and you know yeah. however you might want to frame 
the sort of divisions, let's say, that emerged at the beginning of last century. And so it always seemed to me that there was interesting work to be done on, let's say, overcoming some of the perceived differences of those two supposed traditions and looking at the ways in which mathematics might figure in the developments of both streams seemed like a useful way of trying to kind of at least look to see how that difference might be sort of, you know, overcome. So not sort of reduced completely, but at least where you can actually recognize, let's say, common problems, but, you know, divergent approaches on the basis of, you know, let's say a more rigorous analysis of what might be understood to be going on. I kind of think about, I forget how the motto goes above Plato, the arch leading to Plato's academy, but it's like, he who is ignorant of geometry shall not enter here or something like that, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's almost like the, what, the, the, there's the motto in, in front of Dante's Inferno, right? The abandon all hope, something like that, right? So, but Deleuze seems to take seriously this this notion that, that no, in, in fact, Plato's onto something that philosophy should be interested in the history of ideas, specifically mathematical ideas, if we want to get at what he's trying to elaborate, right, which is a philosophy of, of difference. But Cooper had something uh, that caught his eye. I was telling him about the title of one of your first essays, Schizomath, but Cooper yeah. was, was thinking about this. This is a great example of kind of the speculative turn that I sort of was discussing. But Taylor and I, I think two you know, we were mentioning bef before you joined us that it is interesting that Leibniz in particular is someone that sort of straddles both of these worlds in a, but like in a full capacity, right? He's not just doing sort of mathematics in a part-time sense or referencing mathematics. He's actually, you know, building a system and so forth, of, you know, to be very loosely with the jargon there. But I had this notion that he sort of schizophrenizes mathematics by, and I was thinking about this in terms of, I guess, the sort of the infinite infinities and there never being, and that leaving sort of an openness rather than this sort of closed mathematical system from whatever antiquity or, or however you'd like to discuss it. I don't know if that strikes you at all, but I, I did think that was kind of an interesting little thing that I noticed while doing, Mo while doing the reading. The monads all the way down, right, seems kind of schizophrenic, right? That there's no, it never bottoms out, right? It's right, just yeah. There's kind of an infinite series of infinites or a multiplicity of multiplicities. Mm. <laughs> I think the way I try to frame it in, um, in the History of Math book is um, sort of you've, you've got the setup of the problem. You've got his idea of, um, of matter. So I think I use the cock curve to sort of try to characterize yeah. his sort of thinking there where you sort of end up with some kind of fractal thing that is sort of um, infinitely sort of developing but doesn't bottom out. And if you're thinking about matter, that's kind of a problem, yeah, because you've got <laughs> ultimately matter rests on on kind of nothing. It's like a right. regress of sorts. And so then the monad sort of is laid over the top of that to somehow, you know, Again, the details of exactly how it arrests that regress is is sort of interesting, but it's just like there is a metaphysics that contains it, and mm -hmm. the metaphysics contains it in this way, and it's not problematic at a metaphysical level to have these sorts of conundrums. And so you just see sort of there's a displacement from the implications of the math onto the more generous sort of capacity of the metaphysics. So that's yeah. it. That, that that is peculiar. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the. One of the things that caught both of our eye was this idea that Leibniz, in developing the concept of singularity, 
right, which Deleuze will will take up and run with, and we also see this in certain of his other contemporaries, like like Simon Dunn, is that the singular is not opposed to the universal in say a kind of scholastic medieval type of schema, but is opposed to the the regular or the or the ordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was thinking mm-hmm. how clear that was, and how that kind of helps to sort of embody Deleuze's attempts at what I would call, even if the term doesn't really work, but what I would call his serialism around this time of difference repetition and logic of sense, and how your work helps me to think through how Deleuze's serialism is really made concrete by these investigations into the history of the calculus, into the role of the infinitesimal in, in Leibniz and something like this. Because so much of what I had focused on, say, like in Logic of Sense, was a much more abstract view of how series are working based on, you know, portmanteau, the empty square, etc. But thinking about this concretely in terms of mathematics, I think makes Deleuze's serialism take on a certain, it stands out much more than it would. It's it's much less obscure, I think. Yeah, I agree with that in in terms of how the maths, I think, can be directly used and, and is implicated in the logic of sense text. I mean, that's actually, I've only ever made, um, you know, glancing reference to that. I think I really just have, I mean, I've got potted references say, see, it's sort of happening here in the logic of sense. Yeah. Well, but I, I haven't done it systematically. Some people mm-hmm. might think that that's kind of a relief. I haven't destroyed that text for some <laughs> people. But I do think it can be done. And there are some folks who have asked me, to do that, or, or if that's indeed the case, and to sort mm-hmm. of they, but I do think that that is warranted. I do think that my reading of Deleuze, whether this is contentious or not, is that, and I suppose I finish off the Deleuze and Math book with this sort of idea that, okay, I haven't done the work on the earlier texts to establish this, but I do think that Deleuze, he works by it's sort of uh, sort of incrementally clarifying. Mm-hmm his particular concepts and I think that there's a high point in difference and repetition in terms of that that formalist sort of leaning where he kind of gets this mathematics stuff and I do think that that totally colors everything that follows yeah and I think that that's a defendable kind of a claim I mean Mm -hmm. I do think that there's you know one of the big debates I suppose in Deleuze studies if you want to say that is um you know whether you can take something like a thousand plateaus and there's certainly people who are pushing for this and use it as the model for how mm. to read Deleuze where you mm-hmm. kind of you're just multiplying vocabularies <laughs> vocabularies that sort of compare you're kind of crunching out metaphors and things like that and that's how you should read the other stuff so there's mm. a lot of people who want to read difference repetition and just leave out the hard chapters and just sort of have <laughs> nice stories about what's going on and it's kind of like look okay i think that there's some interesting things to be said about what the move in in a thousand plateaus is and you know i would caution against using that as the model and that somehow we can just forget about all of this other stuff that for yeah. me just seems to be totally entrenched in the text. Mm. Now, there might be an argument that Deleuze jumps backwards and forwards, and sometimes he's further away from that, sometimes he's closer. Right. And, and I kind of think that that's a part of the experimentation, but there's enough commitments in A Thousand Plateaus to show that that same serialization is, is at work. And there are, yeah. you know, he's working on some of the distinctions that are kind of totally, you know, concrete within that history of mathematics. That yes. I've tried to kind of lay out to make it, you know, difficult to defend it being an outlier, even though, you know, again, I'm not, I think that that's 
you know, I mean, one of the ways that I try to push my work is to kind of say, look, you know, I think there is something interesting to the maths here. It can be used in some really constructive ways. Yes. One way might be as a kind of a template to sort of rule out, let's say, sort of egregious multiplication of vocabularies that, you know, on my reading, don't do Deleuzian things. And that's not to say that that multiplication of vocabularies is somehow therefore problematic. It's kind of like, well, it stands as itself, you know. Yes. Is it defendable? What does it do? Is it interesting? It doesn't look to me like it's Deleuzean, but is that a problem? Well, not necessarily. <laughs> um, so, you know, again, it's, it's just to try to kind of bring a little bit more clarity to that kind of a discussion. Is any vocabulary right? I mean, you know, so you've got these extremes of sort of Rortianism and just production of vocabularies and yeah. some material is bent, whereas like it's some other contingency that determines what's the vocabulary that we might feel kind of compelled by at any particular moment. At some extreme, sort of any kind of argument is immaterial to whatever decisions you might make. Right. I just happen to be at the other extreme there. It's kind of like, yes, vocabulary is great, but I think there are good arguments about what vocabularies are interesting, why they're interesting, and what ones perhaps are less interesting. Yeah. Doesn't mean the less interesting ones don't necessarily have an impact or make right. some kind of effect, but um, you know, we can still argue about which vocabularies we think might be the ones that are more interesting. And I kind of think, again, there's various ways of framing philosophy whereby, well, that's what philosophy is. It's about selecting the vocabularies. That's mm -hmm. kind of what it is. So that's how I think kind of Deleuze can be under, you know, can be read that there is, there is a kind of a template that can be used to make that sort of a selection. So, and I, I, you know, I kind of, that's how I try to defend what I'm trying to do. So I think, I mean, the most interesting kind of engagement directly in that respect is, was my exchange with um, James Williams in the Deleuze Studies Journal, the Deleuze and Guattari Studies Journal. So he just wrote a review of the History of Math book and I kind of right. And the, the point of that was to try to kind of say, look, yes, you say maths and everybody kind of goes, whoa, what are you talking about? And, mm -hmm. oh, man, does that sort of limit this or limit that? And it's kind of like, look, you know, I don't see any reason why anybody who's working on Deleuze needs to say anything about the math, really. But having a bit of an understanding of the math might rule out you making claims to what you're doing as being Deleuzean when there's probably good reason to think that perhaps it's not. Yes. Yeah? And so if you wanted to be Deleuzean, you could just alter a few things in what you're doing and kind of remedy that and therefore legitimately be, let's say, making claim to Deleuze as an authority for what you're doing, right. rather than arguably illegitimately doing that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the line that I'm interested in, you know, at least saying that there's a way of trying to think about that line, and we can think about it constructively. And that's kind of what I'm trying to propose. So again, you know, I don't think that that limits the plurality or the possibilities of what you might do with Deleuze by any means. Yeah. Because again, that's not to say that if something might be rendered, you know, less Deleuzean than some other things on that reckoning, it's not a judgment against the philosophy or whatever is being attempted. It's just a, let's say, a claim to say, well, perhaps we need to think about this in its own terms rather than in Deleuzean terms, if you want to say that. Or what is the departure? Yeah. Is it a critical departure? Is it useful? Is it expanding the purpose exactly. of what we're doing here? I mean, yeah. So what, what's actually going on? I mean, I think that that's a useful conversation to have. I like how you put this because I immediately had a few follow-ups, but I'll, I'll, I'll do one by one. The first one being one of the refrains in your work, not just in, the, in your book, but in your essays, is how Deleuze takes seriously the difference between, say, taking 
the exact sciences or exactness in math and trying to map that in a way that would be metaphorical. And he rules that out as illegitimate. Whereas mm. he, he finds, though, the inexact or the anexact and that those types of modelings and mappings can be done in a way that is more broadly transferable outside of the mathematical domain. And so mm -hmm. something I'm thinking about is perhaps how that's kind of central to your point is if you if you just sort of rule out, if you take seriously the way that Deleuze and Guattari do, that it's not mere metaphor and it's not just language games and playing playing around, that there can be these mappings done, then that should be taken seriously, right? I mean, I, I think that that's, that's part of it. The other thing with Thousand Plateaus, it seems like Deleuze never strays so far away from concepts being in coordination with problems and with problematics. Mm. And I think that that, again, adds a certain rigor because anexact doesn't mean less rigorous, right? It's just a different type of sort of schema, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, I think, you know, the, the quote is, inexact but yet rigorous or something yes, like that yeah. so you know the rigor is kind of important but it's just uh all of these wonderful examples of you know solutions are found but the solution is that there is no solution or something like that <laughs> so this is some of the uh you know some of the questions of quintics and mm -hmm, uh, yep, the, the yep. Poincaré qualitative theory of differential relations kind of like well you know i can kind of show diagrammatically that there is a solution curve and there's some incredible regularity in the sort of solutions that are proposed so i'm thinking that there's something like some weird essential singularity there that you know that's the only way i can postulate it so it's yeah. like a postulation on the basis of some intuitive representation of solutions jumping across poles mm -hmm. yeah um, yeah and you know i mean it sort of took, I don't know, 20 or 30 years before somebody was at least able to give some kind of mathematical characterization of that. But what did they use? They used Riemann surfaces to characterize it. So, okay, what are Riemann surfaces? Oh, they're this weird descriptive kind of thing that this Riemann dude kind of describes <laughs> or characterizes. Is that rigorously, you know, reducible to set theory? Well, no, not really. I mean, so again, it's all of these marginal bits in maths that are massively kind of influential, particularly in physics. But that, it, that, again, are sort of on the margins and bits sort of are amenable to the set theory, but other bits sort of fall out of it. And so how does that all kind of hang together? So yeah. I think Deleuze has a very nice way of trying to, I mean, I kind of think that he does this thing of tries to make the sorts of models that function like this, where they're sort of inexact, mm -hmm. that these are the models that should be, or these are the problems that should be our models for how problems function rather than yeah. the ones that, you know, once you got your solution, you can just sort of forget about all of the work that went into it because that's right. your benchmark or your, your first principle for this area of maths. But the idea is that, well, there's always an imminence of the conditions of the problem yes. within the solution and that that's, it's at the table for how we kind of think through what this problem entails and any solution doesn't, get rid of that the conditions of the problem but it really just sort of is a part of how it is that we've got to contemplate what's going on and then all together they kind of function as let's say some other component of how that might be then redeployed in relation to other kinds of issues other problems other questions yeah i think it's very important for deleuze that solutions don't dissolve the problems to which they are related if we do that then we're back to tracing problems from solutions and then we're back to handing over power to those who hand us the problems hmm. rather mm -hmm. than us working working vigorously and rigorously with determining the problems um, yeah no that's it, right 
this is like an erasure of history and yeah. accountability and all this, these sorts of things. Before jumping back to Leibniz for a moment, the third thing that I was thinking of in your characterization of, let's just say Deleuze studies broadly, which sometimes can be creative in good and bad ways and be hyperbolic to a certain extent. You have an essay on Deleuze and pragmatism and subject naturalism, where you kind of call for a more sober and mundane, but more useful Deleuze. Is there, is there something that's, you kind of call for this deflationary view of Deleuze. Is this part and parcel with sort of what you were talking about just a moment ago with perhaps there is, it's too often this need for something flashier in Deleuze studies that, that, that will be more obscure, but somehow more, more exciting and perhaps seductive in a bad way. I mean, is there, is there something you're calling for here in a, in a kind of a more sober Deleuze? Um, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't, it sounds like it's a bit of a, bit of a wowzer, but um, <laughs> I mean, I kind of, you know, I, I don't begrudge the creative of course, license of course. that people, you know, bring to Deleuze and what it, you know, what Deleuze facilitates in all sorts of different areas. Yeah. Indeed, I think that some of the more interesting and flashy sort of things, I mean, what's what's my take on this stuff? I mean, I want to get back to the pragmatism, but but just this this qualification. Yeah. Um, I kind of think that there is no problem with anything that anybody's doing with Deleuze, sort mm-hmm. of in principle in one respect. I just think that there's ways in which, let's say, people can be, let's say, more, you know, more rigorously Deleuzean in, in yeah. the way that they're doing things. Mm-hmm. And that's all. And that doesn't change any of the content or any of the flair or any of the connections. Right. It just means that what people are attempting to be to do could be more solidly kind of grounded. That that's kind of it. And and again, it's not that people need to do more, because I think a lot of that stuff it kind of is. You know, it, it could be up to somebody else to do that grounding. You know, yeah. so again, but there's there's some stuff that I kind of think, you know, fails in its claim to Deleuzean authority that it's not authorized by Deleuze. And for me, it's up to us as academics and in in our own approach to our work not to gratuitously claim authority when there is no authority. And I think it does a disservice to. The humanities, it does a disservice to Deleuze studies, it does a disservice to reception of French philosophy. Every time somebody makes gratuitous claim to authority, it undermines the entire kind of field. So that's all the concern is. And that's Mm -hmm. not to say that, you know, I'm not setting up some kind of way of policing what people do because actually the template doesn't constrain what you do. It just wants to say that, well, if you're going to claim that this is Deleuze, here's a couple of parameters that you might use to kind of justify for yourself that that's actually what you're doing rather than (laughs) you're kind of doing it gratuitously. Again, that doesn't have to be content in your work. It could be. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. I mean, I had had these people come out saying, do I need to talk about kind of math now when I'm talking about Deleuze? It's like, no, you know, for the most part, just keep on doing what you're doing. Push the envelope, keep being kind of rigorous and bring it back to Deleuze and justify your claims. It doesn't yeah. have to be in mathematical terms. And that that's just a good kind of, you know, good attitude to have in, in any kind of uh, academic endeavor. But to pretend as though Deleuze doesn't take these things seriously and as though there might not be something that could add and sort of inflect one's point of view, I think that that is, that's the red flag. It's one thing to, as you're saying, it's like, no, you don't have to necessarily talk about 
math, the history of math, the, the barbaric and pre-scientific uh, state of the calculus, you can see that for Deleuze, that is very important. Even in A Thousand Plateaus, with the it may transform, but in this investigation of rural science versus minor science versus this nomadic science, I mean, still there is this emphasis on an alternative lineage of history of philosophy that is that is in dialogue with an alternative history of mathematics. And that is back to a kind of basic Deleuzean fundamental preoccupation with problems and problematics. And so like, mm. you should at least take that seriously. Yeah. I mean, at least I think it provides grounds for defending. So let's say, you know, we can be um, Brandomian. It's kind of like, well, you could do what you're doing. But the yeah. thing is, if somebody pushes back, you can kind of go, well, here are my reasons. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so it's a framework of reasons for defending mm. whatever it is that you're doing. So, so again, you don't have to foreground it, you don't have to footnote it, but it's there as a template. That is one possible template, yeah? So yeah. again, I'm not wanting to claim that it's the template, but it's it's certainly one and hopefully a, a useful one. Especially with the rise of someone like like Badu. I mean, he's he's very prolific. He's almost prolific as someone like Zizek. And with the, his rise and with sort of the clamor of being in a way in which Badu kind of makes a straw man out of Deleuze, yeah. I do think it's important to rise to the challenge. Many have. I know that John Rofe has. I know Dan's written on this. You've you've tackled this. It's important to face those kind of criticisms, especially the very large ones that Deleuze is a thinker of the one, for example, mm. which I, I find to be just pretty much bald-faced lying. But I, I wouldn't want to call Badu a, a sophist. I know he would be very upset about that. <laughs> but you yeah. know, th there is something about taking these these problems seriously instead of instead of pretending like they're not there. The charge of academics engaging with material and having an agenda that they're transparent about or not yes. is a problem across the board and it doesn't yeah. escape people like Badiou either. So, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of clear. <laughs> but but yeah. I mean, to bring it back to the pragmatism question. Yes, yes, yes. That's kind of more interesting. I mean, ultimately, I think that paper did call for a certain kind of setup that, you know, again, I've sort of tried to spend a bit of time thinking about, but haven't haven't yet sort of written about. Yeah. But I mean, my, my idea is that Deleuze can probably be better cast as something like a, an old school Persian sort of pragmatist, where he sort of raises these um, ideas. Hang on, let me. He's postulating these sort of abductive sort of propositions. So I think there's various ways that you could try to defend what Deleuze is doing, you know, fairly philosophically rather than just sort of he's sort of somewhere out there sort of having an interesting kind of glance at how to make sense of things but one of the ways is to sort of think about him in, in pragmatist terms so Peirce has this sort of sense of abduction where you know you have an observation and you kind of think well if x was true then that would make sense of this observation so therefore we have reason to think that you know x is true so Deleuze is Rather than a straight-up pragmatist, as in proposing, so I kind of think there's two ways of thinking about this. So is Deleuze raising this mathematical framework as, well, if this gave us some kind of account of whatever our reality was, it would, so let's say we have this mathematical proposition, it explains the observations better mm -hmm. perhaps than best practice science, so therefore why don't we adopt it as something that should be included in this sort of purview of best practice science rather than the sort of standard model or the standard reductive right. model. 
Um, and so, so I see that there's that kind of critical element. It's kind of like Deleuze is bringing this as a proposition, not just to give us the standard, hey, here's what's kind of going on in how we make sense of things, but it's kind of like, well, given a range of different ways that we think we might be making sense of things, here's another kind of spanner in the works to kind of say, well, look, you know, there are a whole range of things that aren't explained according to these standard models, but these things are readily ex explainable with models that fit the sort of naturalist bill of, you know, it's using mathematics, it's using science to kind of foreground and constrain what claims we're making. It's fulfilling all of the same roles that that sort of naturalism demands, but it's a critical kind of naturalism. So it, it's offering a, a perspective or a particular marginal framework that, of course, plays a significant role in various sorts of places of the, the overall sort of system. But Deleuze is trying to kind of make the claim that perhaps this sort of underpins everything rather than just the standard superficial model and its explanation. So that's the sort of critical kind of pragmatism that I sort of uh, think of Deleuze as sort of participating in. And I think there's, there's, you know, there's at least a way of trying to kind of defend that in a, a more rigorous kind of a way. Well, I was just going to say that that's kind of how I've come to think of how, of one useful way of reading this math stuff that it's still serving this sort of purpose of some kind of critical philosophy, a critical theory approach to contemporary analytic approaches to philosophy. You know, I'm sort of thinking Quine and then that whole sort of uh, neo-pragmatist sort of following. And so, again, those who are trying to kind of skirt, you know, the, the corrosive impact of, of Rorty on undermining sort of uh, constructive debate. And I think that there's a lot in pragmatism that's, you know, trying to kind of do that. So Brandom and Price and people like that are sort of on, on at least this side of that ledger, you know, and just trying to defend reasons and arguments as opposed to just sort of some other contingencies that determine what you might think is useful. So again, how Deleuze sort of fits that frame as it's a critical perspective on this side of the attempts to bring, let's say, defendable vocabularies to our mm -hmm. Rortian set of options. I guess I like how this extends to another question I was going to ask you because I really wanted to know as a fellow translator about your translation of Bloatman and the fact that he figures maybe not prominently in Deleuze's work, but he shows up and shores up certain arguments that Deleuze is making that are very important. One of the things that's so interesting about Lopman is his is this way of thinking mathematical theories in relation to what philosophy can do with it and not sort of making mathematics, say, the queen of the sciences or something like this. He's not elevating it, but he's seeing it in this dialogue. And I guess that my two questions would be like, say a little bit about translating Lotman and what sort of got your interest um, and maybe a, a little bit about his relationship with Deleuze and how Deleuze sees problematics. I think Lautmann is a, a really important touchstone there. And so, yeah, I mean, when I was putting together the initial, my first foray into thinking about maths and Deleuze, mm -hmm. I kind of had all sorts of photocopies of, of the Lautmann in French and was yeah. wading through these and ended up translating a whole chunk of them. And uh, I think it was Dan, Dan Smith, who floated the idea of a translation to yeah. Continuum, mm -hmm. who they were at the time, it's sort of they've now been sort of absorbed into a bloom through. Yeah. And he proposed me as the translator. And he sort of mm -hmm. did all of that prior to kind of mentioning it to me. Oh, oh, <laughs> so, really? So he, so he came he came to me with the idea that the publisher was already on board with this That's as a blessing an idea. and a curse, they were, they were, right? They were just looking for 
So I don't know whether he had me in mind from the beginning, but um, but it was a very, very generous sort of setup. So I jumped at it and I, I already had <laughs> different chunks of it sort of translated anyway. So it was it was actually a, a pleasure to do. Yeah. And, it, you know, once you kind of get into the the groove of it, it's actually it actually works pretty well. One thing that I would like to say just on the translation side of that is, um, you know, I don't want to bemoan copy editing, but um, <laughs> there is there is a sense in which I would really like a bit of reform in the industry where when manuscripts are being farmed out to copy editors, that they actually tag everything that they do rather than just oh yeah do the things that they think are sort of straightforward and don't say anything and then just sort of question some of the big things. Yeah. Because I've found in a couple of my projects where changes have been made that haven't been flagged for things that so egregiously alter the kind of outcome of the sentences that it's, you know, you sort of weep for weeks afterwards. I've been um, there before. Yeah. But this happened with the Lauman. And so I, I think there was like a, a general, you know, whatever, a, what do you call it? A spell correct that was done by one of the copy editors where they took the word groping and just thought, oh, they've just left the U out and that really means grouping. And it's kind of like, no, <laughs> there's a passage in the Lauman where he's just trying to describe what he thinks you know, what the mathematician on the ground is doing when they're kind of thinking through problems. Right. You know, they're groping around for solutions. So, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, group theory just happens to be a part of what Lautman is talking about and it's a major kind of trope. But when the mathematician is kind of looking for solutions and failing and maybe making, you know, one step but then sort of, you know, crumbling a little bit back and things like that. I mean, they're groping around for ways of thinking through the problems. And a lot of that is sort of doing all sorts of mad grafting of different areas of philosophy onto other areas in order to kind of see if you get a bit of traction. But he was trying to articulate this particular kind of process as a personal process. So again, it's not reducible to something like a Brunschwiging. Um, <laughs> this is, it's, it's all in the mathemat- mathematician's mind, but just no. to kind of give a concrete sense of there is an element of that, but it's being guided by this, the sort of imminent conditions of the problem, which aren't just in the mathematician's head, but that's of course, what mathematics yeah. is. And that this is how the mathematician responds. So, you know, again, if that's rendered groupings, it sort of looks like the mathematician is just applying some kind of formal way of solving problems to their own problem solving rather than being a real kind of challenge that is sort of, you know, visceral in some kind of way. That's a spelling mistake in the the (laughs) Lautman text. I think I've got a website where I have an errata Mm -hmm. and try to good. as a correction. So. I think you quote that in uh, your essay on online. I, I did, and I, di- I I think I didn't have a footnote to kind of say that that was an error. I yeah, mean, I, th- I think I didn't even notice that it was an error until somebody pointed it out a little Ugh. while ago. I think I was preparing reading notes for people, okay, and was pulling those passages out so as sort of a PDF of, of that chunk. Yeah, and you know, I, I look kind of closely, and it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've already got that rendered in my text as. You know, the correct spelling and um, yeah so I, I i don't know how many years after i discovered that but it was um it was a bit uh it makes you cringe a little distressing. bit I yeah, mean, it, yeah. it makes it makes you cringe a little bit yeah that's uh you know it's well i won't go into that could be something we can say for <laughs> for another no, time. sure sure um, sure but i do think that this notion as you're pointing out that the there's something honest about it right that the mathematician is not it's not some sterile laboratory where where you're able to just easily group together things as though it's some set theoretical uh, yeah yeah or, or, you know, or there's, some, there's some way of thinking through that as a problem 
Right. Uh, there's some formal way of thinking about solving mathematical problems. Right. You know, that, that's certainly been posed in various sorts of ways in the history of maths, but generally sort of knocked back <laughs> as, so, as, a, as an option. Yeah. So I'm wondering, uh, because a lot of times Deleuze is thought of as not just an anti-Hegelian thinker, whether or not that's even true, right? Because if you oppose Hegel, you're, you're already alphabunged into his system. But when Deleuze, he redefines dialectics uh, several times in different repetition, but one of them, one of the ways he defines it as sort of the art of sort of the, sci the science of problem posing. So if Deleuze has a dialectic, if we could use that term, would you consider that to be closer to, more akin to Lautmann's dialectic of ideas rather than Hegel's? And is that to be understood in the sense in which sort of math isn't already baked into dialectics like Hegel has it, but there's something more dynamic going on? I, I guess I'm trying the best way to articulate perhaps this alternative conception of dialectics as we see in Lotman. I sort of try to create a bit of wiggle room by mm -hmm. defending Deleuze's. It's just an alternative way of trying to frame this. There's not a direct argument against the Hegel, but there are certainly points where you can see where you can at least establish some kind of divergence in the ways in which they're sort of thinking through these issues. So I think I locate one at the level of, with Hegel anyway, there's one at the level of this where, you know, integration and differentiation sort of as, you know, as the inverse relations yeah. are, you know, becomes the sort of central way of thinking about what those two mathematical operations are. Hegel sort of jumps on that and uses that to, let's say, sort of strengthen the sense in which... As this, contradiction uh, or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah this, that's right, as how, how contradiction sort of operates in the the um the dialectical logic whereas Deleuze tracks this other kind of approach to integration which is integration by series yes um, summation and, and so and, yeah. yeah and so there is a sense that once the number of algorithms for doing inverse inverse relations between integration and differentiation were kind of proved and defended that became what differentiation integration was yes but historically that did not wipe power series off the table indeed they continue to be developed and there's ways in which they're reincorporated back into the, the main corpus of the history of maths uh, so i try to sort of tell that story and a part of the deleuzean alternative in dialectics is or tracking the implications of that alternative history and he tracks that history through its influence in the history of philosophy as well and that's where you get the, the vronsky the uh, yes. Bordas de Milan, the the maimon and things mm -hmm. like that so so he's not only tracking the history of the maths and the way that that manifests in these thinkers, but he's also sort of tracking how substantively somebody like Maimon might differentiate himself from Kant different way to the way that Hegel differentiates himself from Kant. So again, that's, I think that could be another interesting paper, let's say, sort of drawing mm -hmm. that sort of triangulation. I think I'm, that's just sort of suggested. But I certainly sort of lay out the Maimon-Kant sort of difference in setting up that alternative trajectory. So again, I think that that sort of, that the apex of that, of where this other power series sort of history of integration reintegrates is with somebody like uh, Vial. Yeah, so Vial does this amazing way of mapping the Weierstrass and mm -hmm. the Poincaré 
onto Riemann surfaces. And that's, that's kind of as close to bringing all of that into mainstream mathematics as you kind of get. Interesting. Um, so again, I think that that's the kind of clearest mathematical sort of statement of how problematics might be sort of understood from a Deleuzian sort of point of view that retains the machinery of the, this history of maths with power series, but sort of puts it on, you know, at least a clear kind of footing where, I mean, you know, we're jumping over a lot of the detail here, but, That's you know, okay. initially some of Deleuze's speculations about the history of math, it's kind of like, what relevance does this have? Is he getting it right? He seems to make some errors when he's talking through the lectures that students kind of go, ah, ah, you sure it's that? I think it kind of works this way. And he goes, oh, of course, of course. So it's like, you know, uh, are those errors rife throughout Deleuze or does he kind of get it roughly right? And I kind of think he does get it roughly right. And I do think that when it looks like he's sort of speculating over the top of the math, he's doing that on the basis of, you know, Herman Weil's treatment of Riemann surfaces and how gotcha. this history of Poincaré and Weierstrauss map onto that and so it's actually fairly rigorous speculative stuff on the basis of that same model that I think he's developing sometimes more tangentially than at others but I mean every time I read the vial and I mean if I just reread some of my work for this because I've got to remind myself of it I, <laughs> the details are just too much to carry around with you yeah but um yeah I'm, I'm just blown away by by what I think I found and what I think is kind of important which mm -hmm. is that that connection. So you take all of this historical stuff and all the little curly circles that Deleuze has in difference and repetition, or at least notes in difference and repetition, and plugs it into this sort of later development that sort of, I think, um, you know, really provides as rigorous. So again, it's sort of inexact, but rigorous framework for thinking about the mathematics. That's not just this piecemeal kind of history. I mean, some of the details of that history you know, whether you're Newtonian or Leibnizian kind of doesn't matter once yeah. Newtonian's, his symbols are adopted and used. And I think even Weierstrauss kind of describes what he's doing using Newtonian terms, even though he's yeah. using Leibnizian notation, it kind of doesn't matter right. if he's Leibniz or Newton, then the implications are still kind of clear. It's an alternative kind of history. And, you know, I kind of think that that history the other controversy is, okay, non-standard analysis. I was going to ask um, about that, yeah. With Robinson, had Deleuze read that? Is it important? Is it a touchstone for him that justifies the history? And it's kind of like, well, look, you know, there's a story that does plug into the non-standard stuff. Was that what prompted Deleuze to think through? No, probably not. He doesn't cite but him. Not until the Leibniz book. I mean, okay, he yeah. just mentions it later in the Leibniz book. Right. But it's, it, it seems kind of clear to me that somebody who's writing about this stuff is aware of what's going on in the field. Yeah. The non-standard, the Robinson stuff is not going to go unnoticed, even if it's not going to be clear what implications it has. And I mean, the caution in that is sort of important because again, whatever the Robinsonian infinitesimal is, it's going to be, it is different to the Leibniz. So there's no, there's no direct grounding of whatever Leibniz was doing. That hasn't kind of been done in any kind of clear way, but it's a part of that history. It sort of establishes yeah. that history as something that's ongoing. It's still under research. And people are still kind of producing interesting results that change the nature of the way that that relationship between the standard history of the math and the alternative power series history mm -hmm. can be understood to sort of play out. My aim is to sort of give legitimate breadth to what that history is and to sort of place Deleuze as being inspired by that and sort of tracking whatever aspects of that are relevant to his work at the time. I think it is interesting to think that Deleuze may have been at least 
somewhat aware of Robinson's work, if not firsthand, then hmm. indirectly, because it gives a little bit more sort of basis for his argument that throwing out the infinitesimal as though it doesn't matter in the history of problems, he kind of stakes the claim that it does. And this is why he wants to, as he calls it, revisit the barbaric and pre-scientific state of the calculus. I forget exactly how he says it. But the, the other thing that, that came out to me sort of revisiting differential repetition was that Hegel himself wants to drop out the infinitesimal. And this is why he can so easily make differentiation and integration opposites, contradictory states or whatever. When Deleuze says more than once that for him, for the problematics that he's interested in, integration is not just the inverse, right? Mm. That there's something to that claim that seems to strike, say, like me at 18 in calculus classes, like, well, of course, integration and differentiation are, are inverse. But for Deleuze, there's something philosophically important in staking this claim that it's, that it's not. And uh, I think that, that that kind of stood out to me, again, in Deleuze's interventions here. Hmm. You know, there's various ways. I, I think the Maimon is kind of interesting here because, I mean, mm -hmm. Maimon has this whole sort of gloss sort of looks like he's giving an account of perception or something like that. So right. again, it's not it's not going to be causal because he thinks of the math as just that's just some rule that we use to explain to ourselves about what's going on. He's not describing what's actually going on. So it's kind of like, well, you know, we differentiate red and green by if we just had red, we'd have nothing to differentiate it with. Right. So we'd just have nothing. But if we have a contrast, how do we determine that contrast? Well, we determine it differentially. So one's, you know, one's a DX, one's a DY, you whack mm -hmm. them into, you know, so he's, he thinks that that's what, that's some kind of mechanism in our mind that allows us to make sense of our sensations, Yeah, you know, without, without that having any kind of any implication of that, whatever causal relationship is going on there or anything like that. I mean, it's a non-causal kind of account of how we make sense of sensation. Because I mean, we can't deny that we're receiving something. I mean, maybe that's the wrong word, but there's phenomena that we're trying to make sense of. And how do we make sense of that phenomena? Well, he thinks that we make sense of it contrastively by virtue of these differentials. So yeah. what power series gives us is it gives us an account of how you go from 1dx and 1dy to a curve that differentiates the contrastive or that, you know, that makes graphic the contrastive difference. So it, it maps the contours of the red and green surfaces that I'm trying to make sense of phenomenally. Yeah. Um, and that's when you go from DX to the actual X and Y. The X, Y then is the coordinates of that particular curve differentiating those two areas of color. So that's why the power series is important because you're starting from the minimal distinction and you've got, you're trying to find, let's say, the borders of, you're trying to kind of, you know, carve up your sensory space into differentiated sort of phenomena. And so that's what the maths does when you think of it in terms of power series. Mm. So any, anywhere where you're making a distinction, Maimon, and I think Deleuze as well, thinks that one way that we can ex at least explain to ourselves about how it is that we're making that difference is to, th is to use the resources of the differential calculus as a power series to kind of understand how we make those differences. So again, you know, this is just the difference, differentiation with a T aspect yes. rather than the differentiation with a C. So it's kind of like, well, you can use via Strassi and analytic continuity. So all that means is you start with a point and you haven't even got a point. You actually just got two different, a difference of intensity yeah. that you resolve into a point by virtue of, you know, encoding 
one is dx and one is dy and then putting it in a relationship and then having a power series. So it's kind of like you, you just have a point. How do you make that point align? Well, your first differentiation gives you the tangent, yep. right? So that's going to give us, well, this curve has a tangent here, which means it's, it's going to do something like this or something like that. The second differentiation tells me whether at this point it's curving up or down. So it's right. Going to, and then each successive term of the power series further characterizes the specific qualitative nature of the curve at that point. So, so again, if you do that infinitely, that's the, the abstract mathematical kind of problem. You get the curve. But of course, you know, in maths, you, you can't do that infinitely. Right. You just do that as far as you need to do in order to get the difference that's relevant for your, the difference that's necessary at the time. So again, sort of some kind of finite length of the power series is sufficient to give you an approximation of the curve. So you approximate it enough such that the difference becomes a significant difference phenomenally for you to be able to kind of engage with the thing in some meaningful way. So again, this is just, it's not what actually happens. It's not, it's not like Deleuze's or Lautmann or any of the mathematicians, well, actually, maybe historically, but certainly Lautmann and Deleuze are not Galilean. They don't think of maths as the language of God. And right. Somehow discovering it in the world and that it's telling us how the world as something outside of us relates to us. It's quite the opposite. It's kind of like, hey, here's some, here's some way that we've figured out of understanding what differences of intensity are. Mm-hmm. And we've worked out a way of turning those differences into let's say differentiable fields that look like they map onto our the phenomena that we experience so we can think of it as a rule that explains to us how it is that we can carve up our phenomenal experience in the way that we do so it's there's no reason for there to be a connection between what we're doing as a rule of the understanding and how that might relate to whatever you think is some more transcendental way of thinking about mathematics right this gets into something that Cooper and I were talking about before before the show, which was about Lautmann's relation to Plato and the ideas. Because what mm. you're what you're laying out, I think Cooper in our discussion, what it was something about the the ideas are structural schema, right? Yes, yes, and they're not universals, right? So, so, so the form, I guess the forms or something are not universals. They're more like structural, I don't know, manifolds or something like that. I mean, I kind of think of. Lautmann's Platonism, it's kind of not a top-down Platonism, it's sort of a bottom-up Platonism. Right, yeah. Interesting. Which I, kind of that's, like... And that's kind of why I thought this is maybe where Deleuze was, or a kind of Platonism that Deleuze would find agreeable or exhibits or something like that. Sorry to interrupt, though. I think I agree, but I think there's sort of a limit, and I do think that Deleuze, that there is a difference between the Deleuze, <laughs> Deleuzean and the Lautmannian commitments. So Lautmann yeah. does think of there being some higher-order logic you know or this this dialectic of ideas but he thinks that you know so the mathematicians they just kind of think provisionally about whatever these ideas are and indeed he doesn't think we ever kind of have any kind of concrete sense of what those ideas are he just thinks they're, they're governing what ideas we do have are the conceptual pairs that sort of fall out of of them and the mathematical theories that we're trying to make sense of so what we have concretely are conceptual couples and the mathematical theories. And indeed, he thinks that we extract those conceptual couples from the mathematical theories. So we start off with mathematical theories and we retrospectively work out how, that, how they relate to each other by this broader dialectic. And I mean, the reason he thinks that that's going on is because he can see people generating new areas of mathematics by plugging 
one area of mathematics that looks completely divergent to another into each other to provide new solutions. So he's kind of thinking, how can that possibly happen? What's going on there? There's got to be some higher sort of thing that's organizing this stuff. And so I think he, he's constantly deferring any commitment to what those ideas might be. And indeed, what we are able to do is to sort of extract things like local and global and divergence and convergence and things right. like as sort of mathematical kind of concepts or, you know, it's concepts that are extracted from the maths. And that helps us then to generate, or at least let's say maybe order our mathematical theories. But he thinks the mathematical theories are the things that sort of come up by themselves. But he thinks that, so again, I mean, what Deleuze does, I think, is Deleuze just sort of gets rid of that top level of ideas. And the ideas for Deleuze then become just ways imminent. of thinking about the, the, yeah, the imminent conditions of the problem. If there's an idea, it's actually at that level of the conditions of the problem rather than right. something that you know, um, supervenes them. Yeah, Right. I like that because that actually makes sense of how Deleuze thinks ideas are, are sort of out there in the world. They're not above the world. They're not, they're not sort of in our heads, right? They, what does he call them? Complexes of coexistence. They're in-dimensional defined multiplicities, right? Which would give them a certain relationship to an embodiment that isn't coming from some some heaven or some some eternity or something like this. Yeah. And I mean I, I think that, you know, one of the I think, you know, the the most quoted Caveas is the comment that Caveas makes when he and Lautman are presenting their work in the 30s. I can't remember the exact, but he just expresses a reservation. It's kind of I'm not quite sure what these sort of ideas are. Right. You know, I kind of think that they're sort of imminent in the problem. Uh, I don't know if that's gloss, but he at least <laughs> makes that gesture to say that it's the conditions of the problem that are the things that really drive the mathematicians and, and the production of mathematical theories. And I sort of think Deleuze is in that boat. He's sort of wanting to sort of, let's say, yeah, anyway, sort of challenge the ways in which the Lautman is just too amenable to a certain kind of Platonism. So again, that's, you know, there's a whole other question of Platonism in mathematics and whether Deleuze can askew that but perhaps that's a, that's another kind of question i mean i've just been reading some interesting stuff where you know people are trying to defend in a quinian sort of naturalist frame so trying to sort of deny the comprehensiveness of quinian holism in order to allow room for to also sort of deny mathematical realism mm. and so that's sort of one of the things that comes out of out of Quinian naturalism is that, well, if, if there is a holism and if mathematical theories are sort of important for the scientific theories that sort of generate that sort of holism, mm -hmm. then we have to accept the mathematics, at least that mathematics implicated in the best scientific theories as having some kind of, you know, well, we have to take at face value, let's say the commitment that some of those theories have to a mathematical real. And so people are wanting to push back and say, well, actually that holism isn't actually as whole as <laughs> want it to be there's actually all sorts of conflicting kind of ways in which research bifurcates and mm. that might give us grounds to think that therefore there's no reason to think that we need to commit to mathematical realism so that for me is sort of very kind of interesting because it mm -hmm. sort of looks like Deleuze is just operating on that presumption anyway again without defending it or without sort of really reflecting on that as a necessary sort of problem but just sort of trying to kind of you know find wiggle room to sort of develop his own ideas so again, that for me, that's sort of what one way to defend what Deleuze might be doing would be to pursue that, perhaps that line of arguments. You have a, a critical Quinnianism, uh, Quinian naturalism that 
also favours this this treatment of mathematics. This seems to be in line with his notion that whatever he he puts it in scare quotes, Lautmann's structuralism, it can be sort of justified by way of understanding it as a genetic method, a genesis for the sort of actualization of the virtual. In that sense, perhaps Deleuze's serialism then is closer to sort of Lautmann's mathematical structuralism than any of the other structuralisms that were in vogue in the 60s. Because in a certain way, I'm just thinking of, again, the serialism question I had, but uh, his essay on how do we recognize structuralism, where Mm -hmm. it, it seems like Deleuze's sort of giving some of the elements that we find in, say, a logic of sense with how series converge and diverge and conjoin. But it seems to be what's left out, obviously, with structuralism is, you know, whether it be um, perhaps like larval subjects or, again, the actualization of, of ideas, this genetic impulse that he also finds in in Maimon, he finds in this, mm. again, this reinvestigation of of the calculus that was just kind of a broader comment to yeah. to clarify. Coop, did you? But, but I, I sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, I do. I do think it sort of makes me think. Not that I want to cut you out, Coop. But no. <laughs> this this idea. I mean, the genetic stuff. I kind of think is mappable onto the differential, and I do think that what Lautman does is really clarify what's going on in Vial's work and plugs that into a broader kind of a understanding of how maths might be understood to work. Mm-hmm. That is consistent with what Vial is doing by bringing Romanian geometry and Romanian space and showing Mm -hmm. how that's resolvable with the Poincaré kind of stuff and that whole history. I mean, that's that's one of these novel connections that Lautman sees going on in maths around him, that he's trying to kind of provide a framework for understanding. And so it's, it's, again, it's looking at how these genetic kind of problems plug into these more general sort of solutions. So you've got your local genetic stuff, you've got your global sort of solution, and it's like, bang, they're sort of, they kind of plug into each other and give us another way of thinking about what's going on in maths. So again, you know, the first, let's say, three layers of the line Deleuze is in with, he just thinks that it's there's an imminence of the problems at the third level that doesn't require these sort of you know, potentially transcendent ideas or, you know, the forms or however Plato might think about it. I think all of that maps onto these distinctions that you're thinking about. I mean, do you think it would be useful to kind of talk through that history of math and how it sort of works? I mean, I've got a couple of graphic ways of trying to say, you know, what do I mean by it? I mean, how is it, how is the power series stuff different to the inverse differentiation? What's actually going on with the Riemann stuff? We're following you on the ride. So if this is if this is something that you feel passionate about, I'm I'm here to listen. Same. Take us on on right. on the ride. I mean, like you're you're, you're... minimal social repression. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I was just thinking about you know what you get with the Maimon and at least what looks like there's this rule of understanding for making for differentiating things and how we were saying that that's difference differentiation with a T. Yes. So. You know, we can use Maimon as a model for understanding how I just make sense of everything around me. Yeah. So it's all of the differences, you know, even just two dimensionally, I can tell the difference between whatever the box on the cupboard and the cupboard by differentiating that line. So I start off with a difference of intensity. I suppose this doesn't work on a podcast, does it? Just to interject and, and to help you uh, to go further with this Maimon, what I really liked about your your writing on this was the very fact that without differentiation, 
there seems to be no possibility for consciousness. I mean, my name, my mind kind of lays it out that if I've, if I've mm. just got read, if, if I just got, if there's not a disparation, as Simon Do might say, right, there's not a, a sort of intermediate level between orders of magnitude, then there is no emergence of whether it be consciousness, the understanding, etc. So there seems to be this, this differential point of view seems to be much, much more important for all sorts of emergences rather than just human understanding. That's very nicely put. With the Maimon, we're still just sort of operating, going from, let's say, a difference of intensity mm -hmm. to being able to differentiate to different things, yeah? Any particular curve is just giving me a difference between two different sort of um, regions. So you'd mm -hmm. have to do that on all sides and then in all dimensions in order to kind of turn whatever it is that you're experiencing into a three-dimensional object. That's multiple goes at doing the power series and so what happens with Poincaré and you know the limits of the Weierstrass which is kind of what this is doing I mean this would all be analytic continuity where you keep you keep doing this curve until it gets to some pole which where the curve just sort of veers off so that represents an end so therefore okay you've got the contours of a thing but then how do you start to figure how the ends of things relate to other things that also sort of end. So, you know, you've got more abstract things that perhaps aren't aligned next to each other. I mean, how do you relate those things to each other if you're not able to form a, an analytic continuity sort of between them, even if you're jumping across different sorts of curves? But there are certain things mathematically that just are divergent. And so what Poincaré comes along is, well, you start to play around with the difference between the natural numbers and the imaginary kind of numbers and you end and the difference between those two is that well one maps onto a two-dimensional cartesian grid the other maps onto a, a three-dimensional right uh, kind of grid so you actually go up a dimension and so the, the poincare solutions where he's sort of trying to work out how you get from one you know mappable kind of curve that ends at a point to another mappable curve that ends at a point you actually go up a dimension and you have a surface and that what you see on the surface is the solution curves of things jumping across. So that's where you get these nodes or curls or whatever, whatever they're, they're called. What happens with Vial later on is that he maps that difference. So the difference between sort of discontinuities and the sort of, you know, the in, sort of intuitive description, the sort of informal description of Poincaré curves mm -hmm. onto actual surfaces. What you end up having is you, you just have relationships between surfaces. So any single surface is going to be something that you can map sort of a whole range of, I don't know, I suppose you three-dimensional things that are resolvable into two-dimensional differences, mm -hmm. uh, but things that aren't resolvable into two-dimensional differences, you've got to kind of go up a dimension. So you're actually thinking about how that lack of resolution is a relationship between two different surfaces that's yes. resolvable by a third surface. Yes. And so you, you're sort of constantly moving between sort of a re reduction of a three-dimensional solution to a two-dimensional presentation of it that then becomes a problem in relation to some other two-dimensional presentation that is able to be resolved in a, another three-dimensional presentation. And so the vial gives us a model for how that is something that can kind of you can just keep going. It doesn't just stop at the via Strauss-Poincaré connection. It's something right. that can just keep going up. And so thus you get differentiations with a C of differentiations with a C. That's the Deleuzian where it looks like he's just generalizing from the Poincaré model, but actually that generalization maps onto what happens when you're thinking in terms of Riemann surfaces. So right. you then have a world that's constantly flipping. I mean, mate, this is this is a very informal description, but the idea is it's one way to make sense of it. You sort of, you kind of have a problem 
about how to resolve two different, let's say, issues. One way of thinking about that is thinking about what a solution curve might be in relation to them. So you sort of you find one way of you know finding the elements of that problem that you can then juxtapose with each other in order to then launch the possibility of constructing a new concept. So I kind of think that that's what the shift. That's what it means to produce a new Riemann surface. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something new in a Deleuzian sense. And I mean, there's this interesting way of thinking about them such that, I mean, and this is to go with this sort of question answer sort of issue that Lautmann sort of talks about that I think mm-hmm. Deleuze adopts. Yes. It's kind of like we're always on a surface and we retrospectively can resolve that surface into the elements that compose it. Right. And it's sort of retrospectively that we kind of work out what, this sort of logic is, this logic of the calculus. And that then puts us in a position for understanding how we might go about sort of constructing new concepts. Mm -hmm. But most of our work is sort of done retrospectively. Mm -hmm. And indeed, uh, so whatever identities we might identify on any surface are always done retrospectively. So we're not sort of producing some new identity. We're just sort of producing a new problematic that we then need to sort of work out in relation to another problematic before anything concrete in terms of identity emerges on that new surface. So there's always that sort of lag between the constructability of any layer. I like this because it, it reminded me of exactly how Simondon works through, for example, binocular vision. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's the two eyes are producing a depth of field in mm-hmm. the resolution, what he calls disparation of their sort of minimal differences. And that composes this third dimension, right? That sort of Very resolves nice. their antagonisms. But the other thing I was thinking of was when... Someone like Bergson and Deleuze are talking about multiplicities. Are they referring to Riemann specifically, the the translation into French of Riemann, the the notion of a manifold? My understanding, at least, and perhaps there are Bergson scholars out there that are a bit better at this, is that it kind of looks like Bergson is referring to... So one important point, at least for my take on Bergson, is that Bergson is thinking prior to Weil, so prior to some of these different Riemannian ideas. So okay. Riemann has this idea of space, which is start locally, and even though space is curved, we can still talk about it in Newtonian terms by just thinking infinitesimally. Okay. So you have this sense of space as starting off small, and then it's just sort of a composite, a patchwork of right. infinitely small kind of spaces that any one of which we can deal with in Newtonian terms, but globally, we've got to look to some other way of thinking about it. I kind of think that that's an influence on Bergson, but mm-hmm. not the ways in which that plugs into the power series stuff. Okay. And you get, you get, so Riemann had these two conversations about space and about surfaces. So again, infinitesimal spaces geometrically and, and surfaces and didn't really have a conversation about what the relationship between the, the two of them were. That was sort of separate kind of speculative kind of conversation. Yeah. Gotcha. And it's vile and this whole power series history that plugs them together as intimately related. So that's sort Interesting. of post Riemann even. And Bergson, I think, is influenced by the early Riemann. So he has this piecemeal way of being influenced by different aspects of Bergson's work without unifying them in, a, in the way that they are later unified by Weil. And so what you get in in Bergson is some really interesting discussions about multiplicity and qualitative multiplicity. And, you know, he still talks in terms of cones. So he still talks in terms yes. of some kind of Euclidean space that this is sort of applied to. 
you get duration that has this sort of interesting Riemannian sort of feel to it, mm-hmm. but space sort of ends up being fairly conventional. Right. And so I, you know, my take on Deleuze is that Deleuze likes Bergson and reads retrospectively the full history of how Riemann surfaces and Riemann spaces interact into his reconstruction of Bergson in a much more favorable kind of a light. But I take it that's dragging Bergson forward and adding yeah. a massive qualification to how he thinks about space that right. makes it Riemannian as well rather than Euclidean. So that's, that's at least the claim that I tried to sort of make in, yeah. in that chapter. So, so yes, I think that there's Riemannian stuff as an indirect kind of influence in his ideas, but it's kind of only partial and we don't get the full-blown sense of what Riemann sort of becomes historically in the hands of, of Weil which I think postdates even Romanian sort of speculation. So, so, so again, you know, yeah. there's, there's, there's details there that probably need to be nutted out, but that, that's my take on the relationship. And so this is why I think Deleuze can just be so gung-ho for, for Riemann because he thinks that Riemann was on track. He was in the history. He's playing this thing. He's deploying what he sees as the viable examples at the time and doing massively interesting things with it. But it, it's still kind of hampered by, you know, certain kinds of conventional ways of framing the problem and you know i take deleuze's bergson to be an attempt to dispel that those constraints and to deploy the full resources of that those mathematical kind of um, examples let's say yeah and so again it's informal mathematically but deleuze thinks of it as a formal presentation of problems or problematics and so i think that's how i think of it as operating in deleuze it's just this sort of formal framework for just how to rigorously think through what a problem is so when you find one you can sit there and kind of go okay i need all of these elements in order to really ground and defend my claim that this looks like some kind of problem that fits the purview of a problematics and that's that's where that formal framework works i know coop had a question and Coop, just to check in, it'll have been about two yeah, hours. Do you, do you yeah. want to use this as our as our uh, sort of culminating question? This actually might be a good kind of segue. It's going to take me a minute to get there, so bear with me a little mm-hmm. bit. But I wanted to go back to a little bit of the discussion of sort of, I guess you would say, I don't know, the rigorous aspect of you know maintaining a fidelity to Deleuze, I suppose. Because for me, as someone who's approached Deleuze sort of in the, you know, I'm looking at the work with Guattari first and then sort of going backwards and looking at his solo work. And I forget who it was, might've been Dan Smith, more than likely it was that kind of talked about how Deleuze sort of buggers Deleuze in the sense of, in the sort of work with Guattari, he's sort of buggering his own work, let's say in Difference in Repetition, for example. And so he kind of repeats some of these conceptual ideas in a different guise in the later work. And so I'm thinking about, I mean, a great example would be sort of the way the three critiques are integrated into anti-Oedipus, let's say, via the three syntheses. But another example more germane to our conversation would be something like, I've had this idea or notion of of the, what is it, the little singularities, the monads for Leibniz being analogous perhaps to partial objects on the body mm-hmm. without organs, zones of intensity, even perhaps on the body yeah. without organs, and thinking about that even on as like a two-dimensional plane where there's, you know, you could get sort of a topological mm. view of it in terms of intensity, let's say. And then to kind of build on that, there was a little bit of discussion, and I want to say it was chapter one, and you may have to help me here a little bit, but there was discussion of it was about 
the two triangles, one of them being virtual. Mm. And then was the other actual or was it? I can't recall specifically there, but I was thinking um, about this. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I sorry. Think, no, no. I, I, I mean, you're thinking of the Leibniz example. Right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. So I, so yes, I think that there is a way of figuring that as a virtual actual distinction. I was also thinking about this in terms of, let's say, and forgive me if my terminology is wrong, but was thinking about this in terms of a plane of consistency and a plane of a plane of eminence. And those two planes having a sort of analogous to this actual virtual distinction, but being intersecting one another at sort of a transversal. But I guess that would be four, that would be a four-dimensional space rather than a three-dimensional space. So I don't know if that exactly works, but that was something I was kind of toying with that I thought might have some sort of relevance, but I'll let you yeah, respond. I had great fun thinking about these two diagrams, the Leibniz diagram and the Spinoza diagram. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment where it was kind of like, oh, Eureka! I kind of think that Deleuze, well, Deleuze is clear that he wants simple bodies to be differentials. So it's like, well, wouldn't it be neat if you could take the Leibniz diagram, which clearly talking about differentials, yeah. and plug it into the Spinoza diagram where he's talking about, you know, simple bodies, uh, or at least, you know, it, it's, it is a conversation about maths, but it's a part of the extended sort of work of Spinoza that's sort mm -hmm. of rooted in the, the ethics. And, you know, so lo and behold, it sort of seemed like a neat sort of thing to do. So I still think it's kind of neat. Maybe there's people might point out problems with it, but, but it, it seems to kind of work. And so, yeah, I mean, I mean, you're asking for a more literal kind of mapping of that Leibniz sort of diagram. And I kind of, you know, I do think, yes, so what does a transversal represent in the Leibniz diagram? Well, it's just sort of the, it's just the, the line. So, you know, you've got overlapping triangles or you've got, you've got like, yeah, I mean, I don't know how to describe it for the, the listeners. What triangles that are, that are kissing on their vertices or something like yeah, that? Yeah, that's so. right. So you've got, you've sort of got a common line between two right triangles and they're, they're meeting at one vertex. And the idea is that if you draw a line at that vertex and Leibniz is sort of hypothesizing this idea that, well, if you extend that line to the point where one of the triangles disappears, yeah? So right. you, you, you take the point where they're crossing over and you just sort of move it up the line to, the, to where the, they disappear. But you've got to do that in such a way that the proportions of the triangle that remains remain intact. Then what you have is you've got a point on a triangle where there's a virtual triangle that by virtue of this moving of the line, which again, the analogy there is that it's like a, a tangent or a secant in the mm. differential calculus. So you can, you can make the movement of that line, you can give it a differential treatment in relation to these triangles. And so therefore you can think of the triangle that disappeared in differential terms as still being represented by, let's say, right. the, yeah. So it's the change in length of each of the sides as it disappears is still represented by the relationship between those two sides in a differential equation, if that makes oh. sense. Mm -hmm. So if the, the change of one side is dx and the change of another is dy, when that triangle disappears, you've got the relationship remains because the proportions of the triangles is respected and you can represent that relationship as dy dx. And that that is, I think that's that's the implication of the of the diagram. And I think then, if we sort of then step back and kind of think, yes, you've got an example of the virtual there and you've got a virtual, an example of the actual, how does then the broader, this full Riemann surface kind of problem sort of map onto that? You know, you might have something like when you've got, at least if we describe what happened retrospectively 
to a surface that we're on that we're trying to make sense of, then we can break that surface down into two discontinuous kind of curves. So I'm not sure how to get the discontinuity into the Leibniz example, but the Leibniz example can certainly show that we started off with two actual elements. And what we have then is we, we have a discontinuity between them. So I think the transversal is something like what we think a solution curve might do in order to get from one side to the other. But then once we work out what the new surface is that resolves that difference, that transversal sort of disappears and the new issue is how to make sense of this new surface, which is sort of like a, it's a solution curve. But again, like with Maimon, it's just red. So I've got to kind of find something else to kind of juxtapose it with in order to work out the contours of it. And so again, we sort of push up, push up the hierarchy, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it's remaining a hierarchy, which means it's, you know, you're not going in any particular direction. It's not sort of perpetually moving up. You're just sort of shifting things around. You know, that does away with any sort of sense of progression or movement from to some apotheosis. There does seem so, to so be... I don't know. Does, it, does that sort of make sense? So I think that the transversal perhaps would be something like that because it, it disappears in the Leibniz example, but that might mm. be the way of mapping it onto my sense of what's going on in the math there. But I don't know if that actually answers your question well, or makes it clearer. <laughs> with, with respect to the body without organs, you know, there's something that yeah. Maimon talks about as consciousness equals zero. And mm. Deleuze and Guattari talk about this intensity equals zero on the body without organs. And I'm, I'm <laughs> wondering, maybe that's my way of piggybacking off the coop and trying to trying to relate right. this, throw your uh... life raft or something there Sorry. yeah <laughs> but, but that's kind of nice because I, I mean with maimon it's like well when i've got the surface i've just produced this new surface i've constructed a new riemann surface it's red consciousness is zero yeah, yeah? i need it in relation to something else in order to start yes. pushing it up pushing it up the register so that you know and i'm you know i love this sort of partial objects kind of thing i mean i really this really you know, this sort of steampunk graphic kind of description of this new way of thinking about the unconscious in, mm -hmm. in anti-Oedipus. I, mm -hmm. I love it, you know. So, you know, I kind of see this whole way in which surfaces are only partial until they're related. I mean, there's, you can sort of think of them, they're partial objects. And so, again, I think perhaps the surface that Deleuze is representing there sort of looks a bit more continuous than perhaps it is. But again, mm -hmm. maybe there is a surface that sort of brings all the elements sorted together that doesn't diminish the partiality of any of them in particular, given that the problem remains patent in whatever solution you have. So you've got partial objects that belong to a body without organs in some nominal sense, but those partial objects, although unified in that way, are still able to be plugged into sort of other sort of things. So I mean, right, right. Th there's a way of thinking of it Riemanianly. Yeah. Yes. Different surfaces like that. And I think a, a surface just would be a partial object on that that reading Ooh, I like and that, that. that's a very nice way of bringing that kind of together yeah and so again i mean Toulouse doesn't do the work well actually when is it yeah so anyway, anyway you know we can think of trajectories of work and where we might be taking license or whether indeed Deleuze <laughs> is rolling back a little bit and because I do think he does that with the Guattari and this is in line with with uh, Dan's comment so Dan Smith's comment to say that you know to what degree does Deleuze let go of the reins of his own project when he's working with Guattari and I kind of think that arguably increasingly from anti-Oedipus to a thousand plateaus yeah perhaps snaps back with what is philosophy uh, at yes. least the yes, anecdotal I, readings are that he it's you know he just gets a bit of a sign off on Guattari rather than a, a real contribution but I'm yeah again, I'm not going to claim to know so much about that you know I think I find it really 
exhilarating, let's say, to read some of these works and tr to try to do the mappings and to try to work out. So again, not just to gratuitously do the mappings, but it's like, right. that helps me understand what partial objects yeah. are and how they right. might kind of work. And that's that's kind of great because I, yeah. I do think that there's just such richness in those, those texts. Um, and, you know, particularly, and I, I kind of do think that the more you start to do that, the clearer it becomes that even though Deleuze is sort of ceding a bit of ground to what's going on with Guattari, I kind of, my take on Deleuze's contributions are doing the sort of stuff that I kind of think, hope that my work is sort of understood right. to be. So it's kind of like, you know, Felix, come on, man, you know, we've got to kind of, it's, it's got to kind of do the stuff that we think that it's doing. We can't just sort of have free license here. So let's keep rigorous about how these relations sort of operate and how we're <laughs> presenting them as operating. And that means that even though I'm not defending and presenting the logic of the calculus in these texts, anybody who has a sense of how it might operate can just see transparently that that's what's actually going on. And right. that's guiding yeah. how all of these plateaus operate independently and in relation to each other. That's my take. So I'm cautious of folks who want to use difference and repetition, I'm sorry, who want to use a thousand plateaus as their touchstone for Deleuze and as and want to defend not going into the more difficult texts that I think provide the framework for reading and understanding a thousand plateaus, at least in the way that I think Deleuze was trying to guide that partnership. And so I think it's an instructive way to understand and maybe a, a constructive way of reading the text. That's not to say that that text might inspire all sorts of different things that perhaps don't adhere to that particular kind of guideline. I figure that that's at least one of the roles that Deleuze is playing in that relationship. Yeah, um, I would like, agree, yeah. Let me, the inspiration for all of, you know, that 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 is in Guattari's work is, is just kind of amazing. And then trying to kind of at least train it to this Deleuzean sort of framework, I think is a part of what that project is. And I think okay. it's, it's more obvious in, in the later text, in the what is philosophy. I kind yes. Of think there's real clear ways of, you know, you know, and I mean, I think that for, at least philosophically, so if we're putting a more analytic kind of hat on, you know, Deleuze has a problem with metaphysics. It's kind of like it looks like he commits to all sorts of stuff. There's language he uses that commits him to the metaphysics that he's sort of contemplating. So how do you make sense of that? One way to make sense of it is to do that critical pragmatist sort of move. It's like, well, here's a way of trying to push the boundaries of what's an accepted framework for thinking about this stuff. So we could defend what Deleuze is doing by defending some kind of non-realist version of mathematics that allows this to operate as a critical kind of perspective. That's at least my sort of interest in the maths and how you might think about defending it rather than thinking that, well, if you do math somehow, you're sort of entwined in this whole Quinian sort of thing about having to commit to the bits of it that you're using and stuff like that. I kind of think there's ways out of that. Yeah. And I do think that Deleuze's work full stop, just we've been talking about alternative lineages. I mean, that yeah. in itself is an example of how the holism sort of fails and is grounds for arguments against thinking that that holism sort of works. But anyway, I mean, those, those are other sort of considerations. I was just thinking about how difference repetition helped me through chapter three of Anti-Oedipus, where they move to understanding how capital in terms of surplus value, in terms of surplus, surplus sort of flows, how that is different than coding and overcoding. And he, Deleuze, brings in the differential to understand how 
abstract flows are coming together in terms of quantities to create this quality, et cetera. I know that that's, that's just an example of Deleuze still having some of this interest, at least in anti-Oedipus, with the history of the differential and with yeah. his differential philosophy. But I will stick to our guns. <laughs> Do you want to tell us what you are any projects you're working on as a way of of sort of leading us in sort of an outro. Tell us what you're working on and sort of what your next project is. I mean, maybe I've, I've kind of hinted at that already with the yeah. thinking about, let's say, marginal analytic ways of defending Okay, gotcha. some kind <laughs> of way of thinking about what Deleuze is doing in philosophical terms. Yes. So, you know, trying to work out whether or not there is that kind of a vocabulary or language. That's kind of mainly it. So it's sort of philosophy of math, but sort of thinking about some of the more interesting marginal areas of that. So fictionalism in the philosophy of math and some mm-hmm. of the debates within that area where there's okay. sort of, you know, sort of support for the Hartree field approach, but sort of pointing out some of the limitations of that and then raising questions as to whether we need to go that hard, whether there's more subtle ways that we can do that. So that would be the let's challenge holism, let's present the way that science and discourse and even mathematics works, it doesn't work holistically. It's actually right. full of rifes and differences and, you know, challenging peripheries. And to make sense of that means you've, you've got to seed something, you've got to seed holism and we've got to characterise that differently. And if we start to do that, that means that we can think about how math is implicated in this without thinking that it's indispensable in a realist way. We can think of it as gotcha. dispensable as far as realism goes, but just some necessary feature of the way that we think rigorously through the things that we're trying to make sense of. And I, I think that that's a part of the way that I understand Deleuze as having deployed these examples. So, you know, my work would be, again, trying to think of general ways of trying to frame that without having the specific details of any of the mathematical problems, but it being an overarching yeah. way of thinking about what counts philosophically that is consistent with something like Deleuze's approach. What did Deleuze and Guattari say? Mathematics is a monster slang. It's a nomadic science, something, uh-huh, uh-huh. something along those lines. Well, that's nice. <laughs> it's almost slayed me a few times, I won't lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a just an offhand question, uh, and this doesn't have to make the episode. Do you know Sean Bowden, Sean Bowden? Yeah. Uh, yeah are, you, definitely. are you two are you two friends? We've done Acquaintance? we've done a lot together in the past. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. you edited the the Badoo book together. Uh, you both yeah, yeah, published yeah. in the Deleuze and Pragmatism. We're having them on next week. And so I oh, thought wonderful. That- that was an interesting, I didn't realize until we had sort of set, invited both of you that I was like, oh, wait, they did, they edited the, the you know, the Badu book. I had forgotten about your connection. So, so, you know. If, yes. Well, we're all, we're all East Coast Australian folk. So you end, you end up kind of knowing pretty much everybody who's working in these areas. Yeah. It usually yeah. intersects through Paul Patton somehow. Oh, okay. So, okay. So that's a major touchstone. So it'll be a nice continuity there. Right. And you know, if you have any uh, any dirt to give me in an email, you can let me know. So, no, I'm just kidding. But Simon, thank you so much for for coming on today and for for walking us through this. You know, as I said, we could talk for hours and hours about. We, we just scratched the surface, but I, I really, I really, yeah. Uh, yeah, not not to pun on the. We just scratched the Riemannian surface. Um, I appreciate you being gracious with your time and, and for coming and talking with us today. I appreciate the opportunity to make a few of the connections, perhaps yeah. I struggled to make in my work that might clarify a few things for a few people. So it's a really great opportunity to do that. Well, it's excellent. And I look forward to your next work. It sounds like you're going to expand on some of the things that I, I saw you working through, and I'm glad you got to give us a taste of that. 
And uh, we're going to let you enjoy the rest of your day. We're going to stay on to just kind of talk about our next episode with, with Sean. I'll be sure to tell him you say hello if you don't see him. Yeah, yeah, no, before. definitely. Send my regards and uh, uh, I hope you have a good conversation. All right, we'll let you sign off then. Thanks again, Simon. All right, Cheers, thank Simon. you. Bye-bye. And once again, thanks to Simon Duffy for joining Taylor and I on this week's the edition of Machine of Conscious Happy Hour. Of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things. Pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.